Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Catholic Stuff You Should Know here with Nathan Goble. We are uh, not drinking bourbon. We should start with a confession. Yeah. Nathan needed something a little stronger for this topic. Not from the Isle of Orkney, but from the Isle of Glenfiddich. We uh, had our fifth year anniversary as companions, the association we were part of, and uh, it was on Wednesday, Feast of Our Lady Guadalupe. So I thought, you know, I'm going to splurge. I'm going to buy a very expensive bottle of scotch. What was it? Scapa. Do you know how expensive Scapa is? It's oh, Nathan's yeah. favorite. That is. Yeah, it was gone in about 20 minutes. Yeah. From so the, much for connoisseurs. From the Isle of Orkney comes a flavor you might not be ready for. The uh, It's amazing how, uh, and by the way, this is Catholic stuff you should know. I'm sure oh, yeah. That. But uh, it's good to be with you again. Uh, this is right before Christmas that so we're recording this mm-hmm. one. So uh, Merry Christmas to you. We're in the octave right before, prior to. Very exciting. And uh, Nathan needed something a little stronger because of the topic tonight. Because yep. uh, if I do one more Balthazar <laughs> topic, uh, no he's going to be drinking tequila or something like that. I love Balthy. Now I don't know Balthy. <laughs> Who knows Balthy? The uh, um, or Hansi? That's the other name. Guys, call him around here. Hans, Hans um, and Franz. Hans and Franz. That's an old '90s reference. Now, before we get to the topic, Josh Garrels was the introductory music. Do you know Josh Garrels? No. Do you like Christian music? Depends. <laughs> I set him up. <laughs> we have issues with a lot of K Love style, you know, yeah. Christian music. A lot of it is very superficial. And then there are bands that, uh, and there are people who are writing, and they're very, very profound. And one of those mm-hmm. men is Josh Garrels. And so pause the podcast and buy his album. Nice. The Sea and War, and, or what is it? No, something like that. Love and War and the Sea in Between. Amazing and beautiful. And he played at the Boulder Theater last night, open for a guy named Trace Bundy, who's a Boulderite. And uh, he it, it very, very profoundly um, preached the gospel um, without being explicitly preachy. But he was very clear. It wasn't like the vague kind of typical, like, mm-hmm. you know, you just got to love people and kind of, you know, it was, I mean, it was amazing. And Sweet. so I was there with about 30 of my college students. But we started talking about Balthazar again, because my CU students, if anybody knows that this is a very good man and his uh, corpus is vast and much of it is, uh, it's like a thick Bavarian forest you're going through, Nathan. Mm. So you're not the only one. Oh. My corpus is vast. We were just <laughs> talking about that. Nathan was just explaining to me that the human body is like a donut. Yeah. But next week you're going to get a full uh, anatomy lesson from Nathan. There you uh, go. About his whooping cough, which he has right now. So I'm uh, <laughs> we're, wearing a mask. He's got the black lung. I think he got the black lung, Pop. The right. uh, so, anyways, there's the first recommendation is to Josh Girls. This podcast is for you, Josh. You know, I'm sure he listens to this. Yeah, let's hope. Reads Balthazar, all these different things. And it's also late on a Saturday night, so Nathan's already the eyes are starting to kind of sink a little bit. That's so right. I got to get moving here. I had a late morning of watching cartoons and, you know, eating bowls of cereal. So. Have you finished your finals now? No. You have one more on Monday? I have one more. Oh, that's precious. I know. If you can pray right now, maybe God will transmit your prayer back in time and help me to remember all 64 points of our study guide. From which class? Bio and sexual ethics, mm. which is an interesting class. Uh, at one point in my life, I thought about being a doctor or, you know, some sort of medical professional. Um then my test scores came back, but then, <laughs> but then, uh, I mean, it, I cannot believe all the stuff that's in our uh, professor's head and how precise he's able to, you know, explain all this stuff. The problem is when I have to give it back to him, it looks like you know, I just went on a tilt a whirl ride and I'm trying to give him back the candy corn that I ate, you know, like six months ago, <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, it's somewhere, it's somewhere all over this paper. 
It's somewhere in the donut, but now it's coming out. That's right. The uh, topic today is actually a very interesting one, and I think we need to do this soon. All right. The question and the name of the title of this podcast is, Was Balthazar a Heretic? Mm. But it's going to be more than just an evaluation of one point and a growing – it's about a growing theological phenomenon as well and this notion of heresy, which we toss around a lot. Mm-hmm. So we start in our beloved canon law. <clears throat> are you ready for this? The definition of a heretic. If we are wondering and asking what is Balthazar a heretic, we begin with the church's definition. There you go. Which is what? You're holding the book. Nice try. <laughs> Nathan, next week, uh, Nathan's going to make me look like a total fool with this Greek. So <laughs> I was just quizzing him on Canon 751. Heresy is the obstinate denial or obstinate doubt after the reception of baptism of some truth, which is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. Obstinate denial of some truth. So the requirement to be a heretic is that you have to deny or doubt some truth that has been definely, uh, definitively proclaimed by the magisterium of the church. And it has to be obstinate, which means the church has to say, you're wrong, quit being wrong. And then you say, I'm going to be obstinate, right? Mm-hmm. And then the church says, you're wrong, you got to quit being wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there has to be a recognition from the church in order to technically be a heretic, according to canon law. Mm-hmm. Good? So with obstinate, there's there's like a durability to your obstinance, like you're you're hard-headed about it. Yes. But then is there also like a German sense of obstant? Where, like, you're distancing yourself mm. from the church? Interesting. Yeah, I think so. Abstand. Abstand. Yeah, well said. So there is a distancing as well. In some ways, you're elevating yourself above that to sure. say, I'm greater than this. I just think it's important to see, like, with, with Balthazar, as we'll see, like, you know, as we examine this question, was he distancing himself from the church? And was he, like, you know, a duro? You know, like, was he hard-headed? Was he, you know, fixated in his point against what the church was asking him? Very good. Carry Very good. on. Carry on. So Balthazar's co- uh, uh, corpus, as we know, is vast. The bibliography, as I've said, I'm sure before on the podcast, mm-hmm. the bibliography, the book of just the names of the books and articles he wrote is 221 pages long. Just the list of everything he wrote. So this guy was unbelievably prolific. He wrote more than most people ever read in their entire life, as Grons- Father Gronsky, our spiritual father and friend, always says. Yeah. Um, but there... The, the corpus of Balthazar gets reduced down to one issue a lot of times. It's about two books that he wrote, one called Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. The second is uh, called Mysterium Pascali. Mysterium Pascali is a fleshing out of his descent theology, and the first part of Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved deals with that as well. So for the ignorant person who just wants to say, oh, I heard that Balthazar is a heretic, he doesn't believe anyone's in hell. Insane. Okay. Now, that's not the typical theological response, but that has been a recent response um, of a guy named Ralph Martin, who just wrote a book, Will Many Be Saved? And he's responding, and he's saying, one of the reasons why we're not urgent about evangelizing, about preaching the gospel, is because mm-hmm. we don't believe hell's populated, mm-hmm. because we don't believe hell's real. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's happened in the last 40 years. And one of the main problems, the two main problems theologically for that has come about from this guy named Balthazar, who just says no one's really in hell. Uh, because of the way he understands how Jesus descended into hell. And secondly, this guy named Karl Rahner, who has this theory called the anonymous Christian, which okay. could you give a brief explanation of what that is? Oh, I'm sure you could. Go for it. I would say... Take a strong sip. Here we go. Here we go. This will be another, uh, you know, fodder for emails where <laughs> I simplify Rahner and, you know, some, you know, 
Nick Blaha. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no. Stick it to him. Sorry, that was the guy that I had to recant my uh, comment about <laughs> Cardinal Bernadine, who's actually uh, wonderful and very brilliant. That's right. And we're going to do we're going to do another one on the seamless garment. The anonymous Christian, I think, is someone who is not within the visible confines of the church, namely that they're baptized. However, they live their life in such a way that although they may never profess any belief in God or in Christ, they are uh, in fact, Christians, although not in name. I mean, that seems like a really simplistic definition. No, I think that catches the essence of it. And I'm not going to be able to do much better than that, except basically that the seed of the Logos, the that Christ, mm-hmm. there's this spermaticoid. He takes us from Justin Martyr and says that the seeds of faith are in everyone. And so there's an, there's an you know, uh, there's many people walking around who are anonymously Christians. And Balthazar hated that. And so the fact that Martin puts Balthazar and Rahner together is just unbelievable. Balthazar attacks Rahner in a book called The Moment of Christian Witness, defending the, the act of the martyr. Because what's the point of martyrdom if everyone's just anonymously a Christian? Mm-hmm. That's his whole argument. So it's very, very strange to see these two put together. But this is a growing fad. And I run into this all the time. Of course, not in Boulder, because my C- CU students have been indoctrinated. I mean, they've uh, learned and studied Balthazar. That was a joke. You're, not, you're supposed to be laughing. So, okay. <laughs> Oh gosh, you're killing me. You're killing me. (laughs) Strange bedfellows, that's what that sounds like. It is. And so the uh, attacks on Balthazar's descent theology, how he understands the descent into hell, and we already laid this out in a podcast, so we're not going to go into this again. Which is? Um, Which we will go into, (laughs) actually. Sorry, (laughs) we have to. Good, because I need it. But do you know what the podcast's name, in case they're looking for it? I think it's Holy Saturday. Okay. I believe I believe it's Holy Saturday or it's the descent into hell, something sure. like that. We kind of lay it out. We talk about it in the catechism. We talk about Balthazar's thing. Again, Balthazar could be wrong, but there's a difference between erring theologically and heresy yes. theologically. There's yes. a huge difference. And to just toss these things around has been just crazy. So Ralph Martin's is the most recent kind of attack on it. I think he's doing it for more pragmatic purposes. And I think he's got a good intention. We need to recover an urgency sure. for evangelization. We need to realize that hell is possible. Most of us walking around don't really think it's possible. Mm-hmm. Like we don't think people go to hell. We canonize them at funerals. Um, it's just kind of what we do now. So I understand what his project is. I just don't like that we have to take certain theologians and kind of toss them under the bus. And we've been doing that recently. Balthazar got a lot of attack when he wrote these books originally. So this isn't something new. But it came to light again in 2007 with a lovely young woman named Alyssa Lyre Pitstick, who wrote a book called Light and Darkness, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and the Catholic Doctrine of Christ's Descent into Hell. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first time that he's been accused of being a heretic. Hmm. The basis of her accusation, and we'll get into this in a second, is that the tradition has professed, and that there is a doctrine of the Church, right? meaning we, one would have to assent to this, it's not open to theological speculation, that the way in which Christ descended was a glorious conquering, right? He descended as a conqueror, and he took, he descended into the limbo of the fathers, is the, is the word, the phrase that she says is doctrinally defined, mm-hmm. and then brings the fathers and the just souls into heaven, right? Mm-hmm. So it's twofold. She's attacking where did he ascend, descend to and the mode by which he descended to. Because what Balthazar is saying is that the limbo of the fathers is not exactly just that, right? There's not this just limbo at the top of hell where um, the just are kind of hanging out and he kind of walk, goes there and just boom. But mm-hmm. this to, t- to become sin required the suffering uh, in a passive way of hell. 
Now he still conquered that, but the descent is a is a passive form instead of an active kind of going in and grabbing the guys and you know boom, taking off like sure. a rescue mission. And and so what Balthazar is laying out, and it's based in the mysticism of Adrian von Speyer uh, and his own knowledge of the tradition of the fathers is radically different. And that is true. It's radically different. The question is, is he a heretic, right? So um, there's a book that, uh, so basically this book came out in 2007 and she just kind of blasted it and she got a lot of public uh, publication and it, it frustrated. I'm trying to watch my language for mm-hmm. our Australian listeners. Um, <laughs> and uh, it rather oh, yes. difficultly frustrated a number of people. Namely, a guy named Ed Oaks, Father Ed Oaks. Yes. Who I believe is at Mundelein. Mundelein. With your buddies in Chicago. That's right. And so they began this like two-year battle royale, uh, Oaks defending Balthazar, uh, Pitstick, uh, trying to take him out. And uh, it got real ugly. But what I discovered was that there's a third party, a guy named Paul Griffins. Uh-huh. Paul Griffins just published an article in Pro Ecclesia. This is several years ago, actually. And he said, the, he just took on the question, is there a doctrine of the descent into hell? So distilling it all down to, is there a doctrine, mm-hmm. right? Do we, as Catholics, have to assent to this belief? And uh, that was actually in 2008 that he did that. Mm-hmm. And then later in 2008, a guy named R.R. Reno published it. These names don't matter, except if you know theology, you realize that Reno is not exactly um, promoting resource month stuff. So the fact that he takes this line is good. It'd be easy to take a Balthazarian Sikoransky down and say, you know, sure. But this is a guy who doesn't say that, and he's actually saying there is not evidence uh, for the fact that there uh, that that there is in fact a doctrine of the descent into hell in this form, and therefore Balthazar would be a heretic for denying that and rejecting mm-hmm. it. This notion of the limbo of the fathers is a theological term that first comes into existence from Pius the sixth in seventeen eighty four, but it's not doctrinally defined. It's a theological phrase, and, the, and we know limbo. We know this notion of limbo. Right? It's a theological term, and people get confused a lot about that. But there's been recent writings to say this this theologically um, yes. is, is difficult. It's, it's not really working for us in mm-hmm. terms of it. We're trying to speculate and understand how could this exist, how could these souls exist. So that's the whole thing. So her whole argument about the Balthazar's a heretic is based on this notion of the limbo of the fathers, uh, which again is a theological term and is in the theological tradition of the church, but is not doctrinally defined and thus does not compel assent. Make sense? The Catechism of Trent and the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1992, neither of which use the phrase, the limbo of the fathers, Mm -hmm. in terms of the place where Christ descended. Neither do they say and give the articulation that there is an active descent, Mm -hmm. that it's a glorious descent. Now, liturgically and theologically, it's been more common to understand it in that form but it's not doctrinally defined. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So well, even the way that we pray liturgically on Holy Saturday, this is the, the, the kind of the normative understanding of what it is, but the church has not definitively said this is what it is. Well, creedally, I mean, we can, we can, we can speak of all these other you know, ways in which we can get at the tradition, but creedally, don't we say that he descended into hell? Or into the dead. He descended, yeah, ad inferi, yeah. Ah, yeah, ad inferi, right? Yeah. To the inferno. Yes. Um, but that's that's the question, you know. And, you know, the, uh, the what, the, inf- is it inferi or infer- inferno? I'm not sure. I'd have well, to but, it, yeah. but anyway, it's the lower places, right? Right. Um, 
I was just checking out <clears throat> in St. Paul whenever it says in, I think it's in the uh, Philippians 2, where it says um, uh, about, about his name, all those on heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's higher than than heaven, he's higher than the angels, he's higher than anyone on earth, and even like the lower places, you know, the odd, whatever that is, inf- inferior or whatever. Um, so, creedally, we are, we are making a statement about that, but what we're saying, like, you know, in kind of vertically from that statement is, what, up for grabs? We're not, we don't know exactly what the church is saying about well, yeah, she just hasn't – she hasn't defined she hasn't. it. She hasn't defined it. And this – we were just sitting around the fire a couple minutes ago talking about this because the bigger question – and you can go into that dissent. Um, if you'd like to get more confused on this topic, please go to our previous podcast because this is a very difficult thing to try and we're, – we're trying to get our heads around these things. We are not experts and authorities. We're John's just, trying to get his head around these things. I'm trying to get my head around these things. <laughs> Nathan's trying to get that scotch in his donut. In my donut. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, um, so go back to that. Um, for a more technical understanding of how does it la- what is it laid out in the catechism and what is it laid out in Balthazar's thought. The bigger point is this. We are living in a time where the church is being renewed, but she's recovering from an unbelievably devastating 50-year period mm-hmm. following the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. When you study church history, you realize that's not that uncommon, right? Time after councils is always insane, mm-hmm. but we're living in a, in a time of radical cultural upheaval and radical rejection and apostasy of the faith. Like, we're living in that. To recover that, the question is, are we doing it authentically or are we being reactionary? There's been radical pend- pendulum swings, and this is kind of the whole point of this podcast, is to say, um, you know, we, we moved from a time in the 40s, 50s, where theology was tight, uh, it was neo-scholastic, and it was concise, but it was um, in many ways the defense of orthodoxy. Following the council, there was a recovery to theology as kind of this kind of more free-flowing thing, and it got crazy. But we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater if we just go back to that and say the purpose of theology is merely the defense of orthodoxy, the defense of doctrine. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than if we go back to the early church when we realize that – and this is interesting. A lot of people don't understand this. I had a rather, rather difficult marriage preparation uh, uh, hour today with a couple. But we did get – one of the good moments was when we actually got into this. I said – the church doesn't just make things up arbitrarily and say, ah, you know what? I think you should believe in this, you know, and just like kind of going for it. But it's about the life of the, the church is life as it's transmitted through history, the life of Christ, the order of grace in order to preserve that when it gets off kilter, theology is kind of um, reflecting on it, using the gift of reason illuminated by faith. But when it gets off, there's a definition. Boom. It, it's what keeps it moving mm-hmm. forward and it keeps it moving straight. So it's funny that in the patristic era, orthodoxy, that the definition of doctrine was at the service in many ways of defining the transmission and keeping theology on air. Theology's my, major point was not to just defend orthodoxy. And that's the, what, as we're kind of emerging out of this chaotic time, there's a growing movement to do that. And you're in the pews, you're not seeing this. You listen to the podcast, you're not seeing this. Mm-hmm. But from our perspective, it kind of freaks me out, right? When people literally try and go after one of the greatest thinkers of the last century, and, and even Rahner, right, who we uh, are, are much more skeptical about and don't read. You know, Karl Rahner is more brilliant than all of us. Yep. Amazingly brilliant. And he was a very faithful man. Um, but 
what is going on here, and he was living in a time, and his ideas might have been errant, and so may have Balthazar's. But regardless of that, like you said, are they doing this obstant? Are they trying to distance themselves? Are they being obstinate? Are they being prideful and separating themselves and putting themselves above the authority of the church? Or are they reflecting mystically, spiritually, uh, rationally on the truths and the deposit of faith at the service of the church? And the fact that people would accuse Balthazar of being a man who hated the church is insane. Or Delubach, or even Rana. I mean, mm-hmm. these guys, it's just... It's just crazy that we think we can do that now. Because if we throw that out, what we're going to get is we're going to get a very stiff, fear-driven culture. We're going to recover the forms of piety, but we're not going to recover the inner life. Mm -hmm. Because the essence of Balthazar's thought and his project is Mary, right? If you were going to distill Balthazar down to one thing, it's not his descent theology. It's about the Marian readiness and receptivity, the Marian surrender at the service of the definitive revelation of God in Jesus Christ. It's about becoming Mary, Hmm. That's his project. Wow. That's his life. And that's that's the essence of it. And so I think my students at CU are picking up on this, right? And some of them even listen to this. I think that's what they get. That it's not just like a theological hobby. It's about becoming authentically Christian and giving them a more authentic theological expression of what it means to be Christian in an age that is radically rejecting Christ. Hmm. So that's that. He's silent. He's so moved. And so profoundly moved. Yeah. We'll put on Josh Garrels again. Yeah, right. No, I mean, uh, I just, I think, <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. I think th- for a lot of people, this is a question that is not entering their, you know, spheres of, you know, of influence. Um, I don't think in homilies they're, they're getting at, you know, these deeper truths. Not saying that, that they're not getting to any truths. Um, or to other deeper truths, but such a hotly debated issue in this, you know, journal, First Things or whatever it is, is for, you know, a relatively small number. However, um, these questions are important because the, the thinkers, the theologians of the church really do set the agenda in part for the advancement of certain topics. And then as they seek out answers to certain questions uh, and grapple with certain truths um, that haven't yet been defined, then the church um, who who moves, um, I mean, too, too quickly for some and too slow for others, in her own time will pronounce, perhaps, on these issues. What I was thinking when you were talking about that was... Um, I think Rahner was part of the movement Concilium, right? Yes. And then Balthazar and Delubach and I think Ratzinger as well are part of this other movement, Communio. So the question is, I mean, a lot of times in the patristic era, when there was this major issue and people were fighting, what did we do? Well, we held a council. We held a council so that uh, we could have some way to um, definitively define what the church is. And what what she teaches, but um, <clears throat> the um, I mean now I mean we just had a council. We don't need another council. We need um, we need to go back to those documents and the, the the history of the church. But communio, like you know, in communion with with one another and with the church. I just I just don't know what how this argument is serving the. Um, serving the advancement of that. I mean, I just, 
I don't know. Side note, I told Joe this in the podcast. Hi, Joe. He just walked in. He wants to go to bed, but we're in his bedroom. So, And I'm wearing your, what do you call this thing? Drug rug. Drug rug. It's actually rather warm. New Mexican poncho. New Mexican poncho. The, um, uh, I, I told this to Joe, but I went to the restaurant Abruzzi in Rome, which is where Comunio was founded. So mm. these are, again, these are names and people, and you're saying, what is going on? This is just kind of what clerics kind of sit around and drink scotch and talk about, which is true. It's just true. That's just what we've been doing Thank tonight, you. actually. But it matters because if men are formed in a culture, see, theology is never just uh, abstracted by itself. It's always a culture. And so this might not mean anything to you now, but when you get that harsh rebuke in the confessional, in some way, it can be tied back to the way that we're being theologically formed as priests. When you get that stiff, whatever, horrible political homily from Father John a couple weeks, whatever it might be, um, there's a whole culture that comes with this, that's imbibed with this, um, this sense that we can we can judge and we can determine these things. Um, and we can make kind of rash statements, throw people out, decide who's a heretic. When this is happening at the theological level, not just with priests, but also with lay people, it's going to radically trickle down and it's going to affect the way that we affect that we deal with each other and especially with non-Catholics. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm telling you that marriage counseling or that marriage prep club mm-hmm. today was like the most painful and difficult thing sure. ever. But if I come hard handed on that guy, I mean, it's going to yeah. be, it's going to be over. So, well, um, I like, I like this question situated in the period of time where we're in the year of faith, as well as the time for the Senate and the new evangelization, because what is the good news? You know, if Christ is the conqueror, you know, if he, if he is the one who, who dies and suffers, I mean, like, he, he he descends into this, you know, infernal realm um, and frees those in bondage um, and rises triumphantly. Um, how does he encounter my brokenness, you know? Not just on the cross, but, like, is there some way in which right now I'm living hell? I mean, um, I mean, our hearts are, you know, because we're recording this, you know, two days after the... Um, the shootings in um, Connecticut, one day Connecticut, after Connecticut, in Connecticut. Connecticut. It was yesterday. And so there are so many people right now that are living hell uh, right now because of the, the evil that has visited that community. Um, and so, I mean, how does, how does our theology, how does our, 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 our gospel, our good news, our evangelization encounter that suffering? You know, I don't know. Um, and, 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 and are there, are there ways in which if we, if we, if we don't have certain things that are necessary for hell or even Christ's, um, saving action, then people are going to feel like then, then this savior is not encountering my need, you know, for a savior. And this is a answer. It's not the answer. Balthazar was not posing himself as the creedal statement for the church, um, he located his theology within the heart of the church and and wanted to advance this gospel this gospel of Christ which is transmitted century after century by you know saints and sinners theologians and you know stone throwers that's right and i think that's key is to understand that you know we can talk and so much of this academic um kind of you know, shredding people apart, saying who's good, who's bad. It's just abstracted from life. But when you're dealing with hell in your own life, then the question, the theological question of the descent is something that becomes very, very important mm. and very significant for me. And what Balzar is trying to do is give an existential and a very honest appraisal based in Scripture 
based in, in a mystic and her experiences and offering that and proposing it to the church. He never had any expectations to say, I'm so much better and I'm so profound, you know, uh, you need to take this. But he just said, I offer this and I believe this. I believe the mysticism mm. of this, his best friend and the woman who he was a confessor and, th and spiritual director for for 30 years. I believe this. Um, and I'm going to read you a quote now as we kind of close this out. Um, so this is from a friend of his. We remember him on this important occasion. This was written in 2005, uh, two years before uh, Pittstick started this whole mm -hmm. little conundrum. Um, we remember him on this important occasion, the 100th year anniversary of his birth, as a man of faith, a priest who in obedience and in a hidden life never sought personal approval, but rather in a true Ignatian spirit always desired the greater glory of God. With these sentiments, I encourage all of you to continue with earnest interest and enthusiasm your study of the writings of von Balthasar and to find ways of applying them practically and effectively. Wow. I implore the Lord to send abundant gifts of understanding upon you and upon the work of this convention, which he was writing to. And as a token of the same, I impart to you all a special blessing. Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Mm -hmm. Bam. Wow. Which is interesting because given their history, given their friendship and everything, when um, Balthazar died, I believe that John Paul II was unable, unable to make it to his funeral. So he sent Ratzinger to give his eulogy. That is correct. Uh, and if you read, if you read the eulogy, um, th this is the Panzer Cardinal. Okay, this is the one that that is like the the powerhouse of like you know you got a heresy, I'm gonna you know exterminate it. Okay, and this he's going in. And he's giving the, the blessing, that's what eulogy means, you know, he gives the benediction to this man's life, um, and it's not one of saying, be cautious, beware, you know, like, you know, tread lightly, his whole theology's full of minds, um, but exactly what, exactly that, that quote that you pointed out. So if you can find it, I don't know where you would find it, but... Um, oh, I think you could just Google it, uh, Ratzinger homily... Scavenger hunt. Benedict's... Uh, yeah, or for uh, Balthazar's, you know, it's a, actually a beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's where he refers to him as the most cultivated man of the 20th century. Wow. What? Love it. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.